Hello and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden. I'm Chris. Hello and I'm Elsa. Before we get started, as you know, we don't have ads on this podcast, but we do like to recommend other podcasts when we get the chance. Yes, and one of those we've been listening to a lot recently is called the Assassinations Podcast, which uh, does what it says on the tin, but uh, we'll let Neil introduce it for us. Guns. Knives. Poison. Bombs. Time and again, assassins have sought to change the course of history through one single, terrible act. I'm Neil Cooper, the host of Assassinations Podcast. Join me each week as I explore the darker side of history. New episodes are released every Monday and are available on iTunes and our website, assassinationspodcast.com. Do check it out, the Assassinations podcast. It's really interesting. They did a recent one on the murder of Swedish Prime Minister Olof Palme in the 1980s. It was really, really good. Yeah, it's something we'll definitely uh, cover when we get there, whenever we get there. And there's also some really good fun episodes. There's a mini episode on this guy who was killed at a fancy dress party in Switzerland by a guy dressed up as a bear. So uh, there's some really cool episodes as well as the, the serious ones as well. So do check out Neil's podcast. Indeed, but now back to Swedish history. And this is episode nine, one we're calling Mind the Gap. Mind the Gap. I was doing a London uh, tube announcement thing. That is, by the way, if you're not familiar with the phrase, mind the gap. It comes from an announcement on the London underground system where there's a little gap between the train and the platform. So the announcement goes, doors closing, mind the gap, or something like that. But what else are we going to be talking about apart from tube references? So we're finishing off the Iron Age, which we've spent the last two episodes talking about. And now we're finishing that off and we're heading into the Viking period. But before we sort of fully open that door, we want to just pause for a bit and talk about subject areas where fact and myth interact and where it's sometimes unclear what really happened and what is people's interpretations of what happened. So there's a bit of a gap between real history, if you want to call it that, and interpreted mythical, mythological history, hence the mind the gap between fiction and fact. But also mind the gap between the Iron Age and the Viking Age, uh, which isn't really a gap, but it doesn't really exist. It wasn't like someone woke up at 9am on the end of the Iron Age and just put on their Viking gear and said, right, we're Vikings now. Uh, it wasn't that kind of gap, uh, however long the gap is supposed to be. It was just a seamless transition which went on over time. Uh, people didn't suddenly say, I'm now a Viking. Yeah, so it's mind the gap that wasn't a gap, but still a gap. But before we do that, it's time for our tradition of starting with a Swedish phrase. Yes, and uh, you've got our Swedish phrase of the week for this episode. I do. At sätta i främsta rummet. It literally translates to English as to place something in the first room. And the meaning is to make something the most important, to prioritize something. So, for example, you could say something in Swedish like 
Man måste sätta sin familj i första rummet. Yeah, which literally means one has to place one's family in the first room, meaning you have to prioritize your family. You have to put them first. Yeah, so for example, if someone's resigning for a job or a politician is resigning, they have to say they need to put their family first now. Yeah, that's a good example. And we are now going to put fact versus fiction, Iron Age versus Viking Age, in the first room, and highlight the intersection where factual accounts of what happened in previous eras blend with myths and fiction. Sometimes people have willfully lied to boost their or their clan or their country's powers and to weaken the enemy. Sometimes people wrote down accounts as myths and stories, but they have later been interpreted as facts. And sometimes there's a grain of truth that then gets blown out of proportion by large amounts of falsehood. Sometimes it's the case that something was interpreted as a fact, but later studies and improved research methods have proven that it wasn't a fact. And very often it's sort of a mix of all of this. So we're going to dive into that mix and try and unmix it for you. (laughs) And why are we doing it now? Well, first of all, this is a time in history, and in Scandinavian history in particular, where we see a lot of this intermingling of fact and fiction, most notably perhaps with the sagas that we'll cover later on in the episode. And secondly, we just want to sort of highlight the complexity of studying and retelling history. We don't want to start playing loose with concepts like truth and fact. We do like funny stories and things that like the pooping of cows at Olastena and stuff like that, but that's because it happened and it is true that it happened. But So we want to try and say what is the truth, but acknowledge that, as also said, a lot of these things have been called the truth before and are now being disproven or have nuance added to them and it's definitely the case for things like sagas so it's really a a good thing to be able to take off those rose-tinted glasses in terms of the truth and uh, that's a way of saying it yeah and it is really fun a lot of what we'll see in this episode the stuff that is stories rather than perhaps factual accounts They're hilarious. We've got some kings coming up that are quite literally out of this world. But that's because although whilst we can say that it's not a historical account of that king, it can give you an insight into the mentality or the type of society at the time. And that's certainly, I think, what a lot of the saga scholarship goes into in terms of, yes, this might not be an exact precise biography of someone, but it's also telling you what kings might have been doing and how they would approach certain circumstances and situations. And it says a lot about the people who wrote down these more or less factually accurate accounts because it tells you what they wanted their world to be portrayed as. So we're going to talk about three subjects in particular because they are areas where we see this mix of fact and fiction, particularly clearly in this Iron Age, Viking Age gap. Chris, you are going to talk about the famous sagas, but also touch upon other works of literature, if we call it that, writings, poetry, and I'm going to talk about the people or the tribes and kings who were more or less mythical. 
Sounds like a good plan to me. It does sound like a plan. We've been talking about it for two weeks now. It's a good plan. <laughs> yeah. Let's take this good plan and start talking about the sagas. And so saga in Old Norse simply meant a story, and it could mean any story. And that's also what it means today. It can mean uh, a story. The word is related to the word seya, which means to say. And it could also be used about anything that was written or told or portrayed to people, regardless of its form or origin. To be fair, in modern-day Swedish, the word saga is also a word, it's a noun, and it means fairy tale. So Cinderella is a saga in modern Swedish. It's the word for fairy tale. But we're now talking about very specific kinds of sagas. Yeah, and, and that word, like we said, saya, is the word, is spelt like saga, but just the first A has the, the accents above it. So it's the same thing as well. And uh, you could also say that in modern English as well. You could say the epic saga of Joan of Arc. It doesn't mean it was written down by Vikings, but a saga can be a long, complicated and, uh, you know, exaggerated story. But in the Old Norse context, saga is a specific thing. Yeah, but whilst a saga is a specific thing, there are different types of them. So I'm going to read out a few of the titles and say what they're about. Uh, but of course, my Old Norse isn't perfect. Oh no, all those native speakers of Old Norse will phone in from beyond the grave and complain about your pronunciation. Well, I think after you've read some of them, they probably will try uh, <laughs> once they find out what a phone is, after all. But first, there's the Feraldra saga, which are mythical or heroic sagas, a bit like the Odyssey. If you want a different comparison, there's the Kornunga saga, the saga of the kings. And whilst the sagas are generally seen as a bit of an Icelandic thing, the Kornunga saga are actually more about the kings of Norway, because uh, they got up to more fun things, I think. And then there's the Icelandic saga, which are family sagas or sagas of the Icelanders. And this is about Icelandic famous families and these are dated from about 852 to 1050 CE. Now I like to in my mind imagine the Islandinga saga as East Enders or coronation street of the day that like tell tales of important families that interact with each other. And I guess that actually makes sense because uh, EastEnders and Coronation Street, British soap operas, um, there's actually, you know, a, a wedding or a murder or insults in basically every episode. So that might actually be appropriate to the sagas. Um, and then there's actually a couple of others. There's the one which I like the uh, the name of, the Samtida saga, which literally means the same time saga. So these are about contemporary events that the writers would have witnessed during 12th and 13th century Iceland. So basically like a new newspaper. <laughs> All right, so we sort of got the Kjörnunga saga and the Icelandia saga. When they were written, they talked about history, whereas the Samtida saga, when they were written, they were contemporary. They were of the time when they were written. So what else is there? They have their own categories, but we don't have to list them all specifically because we're probably going to do a, an episode on them later on, or there's the, the podcast saga thing, which we'll mention later on. But there are also sagas on bishops specifically, chivalric romances, which are a bit more of a European style of history. And then they also translated classic Latin and Roman works into a more of an Icelandic theme. So that's a bit more like Shakespeare, I guess, uh, doing Richard III or something like that. Okay, so they did sort of retellings of other work. 
Yeah, and one thing to note about the sagas is that they were really plentiful in Iceland because of this curious mix of society that was happening in Iceland at the time because there were two main groups of people in Iceland at the time, um, if you forget about the peasants, and that was the chieftain families and the church. That in Iceland, the chieftain families either ran or sort of were the church, so they could monopolise all the writing and get them to write about whatever they wanted them to write about. And the chieftain families, whilst they were in control of and part of the church system, they did actually want to write about their pagan past and the general history of Iceland, whereas other sort of monks in 12th century France or wherever weren't interested at all in writing about their pagan history and the Goths and, and Roman Gaul and all that. That kind of thing so there's a big difference in that sense so in iceland we have a bit of an exception to the rule where there we get non-religious themed literature from religious sources yeah non-religious themes written by religious people so i, I found that quite interesting yeah definitely and that's because, as we briefly said, the chieftains took an interest in their own history. A history in the sense of preserving traditions and poetry and epic tales that weren't necessarily history in the sense of on the 7th of March, 807, Snorri killed Olaf or, or that kind of thing. And there are definitely massive differences between the genres themselves. The Fornundra saga are historical legends and mythical heroes that are talked about, and they're sort of like Marvel comic books and had that kind of way of looking at history if that was a thing. And they were supposed to have lived in the ancient era before the Vikings existed, whereas the Konunga saga and the Eastlandinga saga are seen as more realistic in quote marks because they were they had more exhaustive narrative sections and actually spoke about events themselves in a much more plausible way. The differences between these genres has led to some previous scholars to think that they definitely could be counted as history, and the other ones as entertainment or fiction. But this is quite controversial, as they're all supposed to be entertaining at least in some way, and certainly all of them are supposed to have at least a little bit of loyalty to what happened in the past. So they're all on one end of this truth-fiction scale at some point. They're somewhere on that scale. They're all in this gap, the gap between fact and fiction. Yeah, and there's enough fiction in all of the sagas to make them unreliable as precise historical sources, but that doesn't mean they should be read like a novel where everything's made up, because they claim to represent at least some sort of truth to the Icelanders at the time, so it's a really interesting mix. And another sort of historical way of looking at the study of sagas is that previous scholars thought that some would have been passed down as oral texts from generation to generation before finally being written down, well, once they learned what writing was all about. And some people think that they're never really oral, but they were written down to begin with, maybe relying on small bits of oral history, but were mainly begun as written texts. And like with most things, modern-day scholars agree that neither are particularly accurate as they all vary. And they would have been oral history to some extent, but there would have been people judging it on a real historical events too. So yeah, there's just such a huge mix, really. 
And to further complicate things, a few of the Icelandic texts contain information that is about the public performance of sagas and sagas as an event, as an entertainment event. So we can see that the sagas were definitely supposed to be performed, or at least some of them, in a big public gathering, a bit like a play. But it would take place over days. And I know that this is also an example of how sagas can give you an insight into the general times and the history that we're talking about. There's a great piece that Lars Lerner has highlighted in an article that he's written about the sagas. And there's a bit that we're going to read out here. What we're going to read out and sort of perform is a piece where a young Icelander has made his way to the court of Harald Hardrada in Norway in around 1050. Uh, not in the morning, but 1050 the year. Maybe it was both. Maybe it was 1050 the year, but it was also 1050 in the morning. Exactly. And so when this Icelander arrives at Harold's court, the king asks him, Hey, do you want to serve me? What kind of talent do you have? Are you an accountant? Are you a good warrior? How can you help me? So this guy is thrown straight into a job interview with Harold Hardrada. I guess. And the guy actually says, well, I'm not an accountant. I actually know the sagas really well. And uh, Harold says, oh, okay, that's cool. And uh, work with me. And I want you to work for me and tell these sagas. And so the Icelander spells his whole life with Harold Hardrada and every evening telling us saga and performing a saga to the king and entertaining them so he was like harold hardrada's live tv set yeah kind of or you know a court jester but just doing sagas instead he's doing this for a long time and then christmas comes around he's only got one saga left and that's actually a saga about harold hardrada when he was in the viking bodyguards the varangian guard serving the eastern roman emperors and that's definitely something we're going to talk about later on in the podcast series uh, not in this episode and there's loads of stories that this saga guy is telling about harold hardrada when he was a great viking and the icelander reads out this tale. So essentially now the Icelander saga teller is doing a biopic of Harald Hardrada in saga form in front of Harald Hardrada. That's the setting. And so the Icelander finishes telling this saga after many, many days, up to 13 days apparently, and then the king says to the Icelander, aren't you curious to know, Icelander, what I think of your story? I am afraid to ask, sire. I'm very pleased with it, as it is perfectly faithful to the actual events. Who taught you the story? It was my custom out in Iceland to go to the Ting meeting every summer, and every summer I learned something of the story from Halder Snorrison. And it's not surprising that you know the story well, and it will turn out to your benefit. You're welcome to stay with me whenever you wish. Ah, nice! Yeah. Good for the Icelander! So in this piece, you can see that the king is basically asking the Icelander how he got so much information and how he got it right. And he basically says, oh, I spoke with someone who used to serve with you. He was good friends with the king's advisor when he was in Constantinople. So we can see that the Icelander himself knows sagas. And the fact that he knows sagas really well is actually good for him because he can perform them in these uh, big settings for the king. The fact that quite a few sagas would have been preserved in Norway, where they have been read out aloud by this and performed in this way, is really quite interesting. It's not been found in Iceland. And the fact that they're talking about the accuracy of the sagas themselves shows that the king appreciates that some sagas aren't true and some sagas are more true. And so he's praising him for doing a good saga because it was correct. 
But of course, the the king wouldn't want the saga to say, oh, and at this point, we didn't really do much and the king made a bad decision in this battle. He still wants it to big him up, at least in some ways. He's not going to say that he ran away or anything like that. So yeah, he wants the saga to be a bit embellished, but talk about the truth and portray him in a positive light. So yeah, even the king himself doesn't want it to be completely factual. This was just a little look at the sagas as historical accounts of early Scandinavian and early Swedish history. If you're interested in sagas, it is a fascinating world of myths and legends and facts and everything in between. And then you should listen to that podcast that Chris already mentioned, Saga Thing. Yeah, they take the sagas and read them out and rank them and look into them. They were actually both professors in uh, in saga history, so they really know what they're talking about. We'll link to them on our social media because, yeah, if you want to learn more about sagas, there's a wealth of literature on it as well and this really good podcast. Definitely do give Saga Thing a listen. And so now, because we're talking about the pre-Christian world, a lot of stuff that appears here can be seen as very pagan and even, like, magical. And you see that events are sometimes being called as being influenced by fate and luck. And there's also a lot of dreams and visions. There are rituals and spells. But the gods themselves aren't really present too much. There's a couple that turn up in the Fornulda saga, but whilst the gods aren't mentioned, there's actually a lot of kings that come up in the saga. So uh, how about you tell us a bit about that, Orsa? Yes, because this is really a period when we start to get the first kings, but it's really up to how you want to interpret this. And the term king seems to get mixed up with deity or, you know, a godlike figure. So someone who wrote a lot of sagas, someone who's often mentioned in saga writing, is a man by the name of Snorri Sturluson. And he, among other things, he's famous for the Ynglinga saga, where he writes about Julfe being the oldest recorded king of Scandinavia. So that would then maybe also make him sort of the first king of Sweden. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And this would have been during our Viking Age episode before the point we're up to in the current chronology. Yeah, but also Snorri Sturluson writes about it hundreds of years later. And he writes about Ulfe as being the earliest recorded king of Scandinavia. Now, I really much doubt that Ulfe was a real person. Uh, just for starters, the Inglinga saga talked about how he was seduced by the goddess Yetjorn to give her as much land as she could plough in one night, uh, which I don't even really understand what that means. And so the king transformed her four sons into oxen and took enough land to create the Danish island of Zealand, leaving the Swedish Lake Vernon behind. Um, I don't even get how that's supposed to work do you <laughs> no i mean it's clearly rubbish and also yulfe is apparently odin's dad and odin is the head of all gods in norse mythology so i don't really see how his dad could have been a real king so yeah yulfe is the first ever mentioned king of what could potentially be modern swedish territory but I think we can quite firmly put Yulfe in that fictional category. Absolutely. Everything about him seems ridiculous. 
Now, I'm not going to talk too much about these mythological kings like Yulfe, but in Swedish, the term that's used for these kings, or kings in quotation marks, is sagokungar, so that would mean fairy tale kings, which I think is quite a good term, because it quickly descends into the realm of fiction and fairy tale here. And these kings are quite fictional, but then people have at times wanted to read them as real factual history, because it suited their gain, as we talked about earlier. So using history and making things that were perhaps originally meant to be fictional and entertaining, making those factual historical accounts, that's a powerful tool to use to legitimize all manner of policy and practice. I mean, you can almost make something real by claiming it has roots in history. If you're someone in the 14th century who wants local power, well, you just tell people that you're a descendant of Yulfe, that you're a descendant of this king from hundreds of years ago. And then, even if Yulfe was meant to be a fictional character, he legitimizes your power in the present day. I also have to say, reading about these fairy tale kings, it remind me a bit of reading the book of Genesis in the Bible, and anyone who's flicked through the first pages of a Bible will have read about how Adam lived to be 930 years old, for example. And it's sort of the same with these early kings, just like in the book of Genesis. They lived till they were hundreds of years old, and they had kids when they were hundreds of years old as well. Yeah, that's not really anything you can claim to be factual. No. So, just for fun, I thought, let's throw a dart at some of these fairy tale kings. Well, not actually at them, maybe at a list of them. And see what stories we get. And then we can sort of judge how accurate we think they are. And also, just so that we can kind of enjoy a funny story about something. So, picked at random from this long list of ancient Norse, more or less mythical kings... There's Harald Hildetand, or Wartooth, as he's called in English. Nice. Is, what does Hilda, does Hilda mean war, then? Yeah, and Hildebard is a weapon. So I think Hilde mm. is an Old Norse word that has something to do with war and fighting. So he was warring and he had one tooth, or uh, yeah. war tooth, or one particularly pointy tooth that was good in war for biting people or something. It's a bit weird, even just his name is a bit weird. Yeah, or maybe he has a lucky tooth that he takes to war. Uh, I don't know, but when I read it, though, you know, there's a lot of debate uh, about people, you know, when they're our age, when they get married, whose last name should they have, and so on. And so I thought when I read this, if you and I get married, we should take that last name, Hildetand, Wartooth. Also, a war tooth. <laughs> yeah, that would boost my career, I bet, if I introduced myself as Osa, war tooth. So what did this uh, fake king, or maybe not fake king, get up to when he was busy biting people with his war pointy war tooth? <laughs> He's mentioned in a half-finished Icelandic tale called Sagaburt that says that he was king of lots of people, but among others, the Svit 
Hjord, who are believed to be early Swedes. So I like this guy, partly because of his last name, but also because he was apparently married to a woman called Åsa. So there was a woman called Åsa Wartooth. <laughs> yeah, maybe that means that I can't claim the name then. Yeah, someone's already had it. <laughs> yeah, she owns it. So Mr. Wartooth, or King Wartooth, died at the age of 150 in the legendary battle of Breovalla between Swedes and Danes in the 700s. Okay, so this is not a real battle. No, it's a legendary battle in the sense that it is a legend. Yeah, it's not like a legendary <laughs> battle. It's like, oh man, you get home. Hey son, what did you do today? Oh, is it this legendary battle? <laughs> no, it's literally a legend battle. <laughs> well, judging by his name, I don't know if he bit his enemies to death with his war tooth, but then he went home to his lovely, lovely wife, Elsa. Okay, and so that's kind of all we know about him, really? More or less. Should we throw another dart at the list of these uh, mythical uh, kings? Yeah, I mean, I can see the next one on the script and it's pretty funny, so... <laughs> <laughs> it's Erik Väderhatt, which means weather hat in English. So again, like, he's got a hat that controls the weather or tells the weather, like those hats with the little spinny umbrella things that, that blow in the wind, or what's going on with his hat? Yeah, I don't know. He is mentioned by the Swedish priest and in big quotation marks historian Olaus Magnus, who's writing in the 16th century, so quite a lot later. But he's also mentioned by Danish historian Saxo Grammaticus in the late 12th century. Who just sounds himself like a time-traveling Roman and teaching people grammar. <laughs> yeah, he does actually. I think Saxo Grammaticus is the root cause of a lot of these fictional accounts of kings in Scandinavia being interpreted as uh, real, because that's what he does in his books. Anyway, Mr. Weatherhat, King Weatherhat, is meant to have lived sometime in this gap between Iron Age and Viking Age, this generally mythical time. The root of his name apparently comes from that he was so powerful that, quote, wherever he turned his hat, the weather would turn in the same direction. Okay, yeah, so it's not a, like, predict the weather hat, it's more of a controlling the weather hat. Exactly, he controls the weather with his hat. He's also believed to have been the same person, or maybe same character is the better phrase, as at least two other fairy tale kings. So, an elusive character, to say the least, but with a great name. Now, are you ready for a third and final dart thrown on the list of these fairy tale kings? Yes, because they're all brilliant. <laughs> so, Uttar Vendelkroka. Okie dokie. Again, funny name. Kroka in Swedish, it's crow the bird, so he's Uttar Vendel Crow. And the Vendels were a group of people, so is he the crow of those people, or did he buy a crow from the Vendels, or what's going on with that? Yeah, I don't know. This guy is thought to have reigned in the early 500s, and supposedly he was the king of the Sveyar, who we mentioned in a previous episode, and he had his seat in Uppsala. Like, just a seat. For his crow. Yeah, so, okay. So, but this meant he reigned in Uppsala, which was the seat of his power. 
there is an actual physical grave mound close to Uppsala, thought to be King Vendelcrow's grave. And now it can't be archaeologically proven that it's his grave if he existed, but we know for sure that a Roman coin dated from before the year 477 was found there. So it's the grave of someone in this period. Now, if that was Vendel Crow or no Crow, uh, there is this grave mound that has traditionally had his name attached to it. We also know of Uttar and his funny surname because he gets a mention in both Beowulf which is an English sort of saga, and in the previously mentioned Ingninga saga, where King Yulfe, the other fictional guy, also got a mention. Okay, so these were definitely exciting and definitely fake kings, but um, we've also been doing a lot of looking into the sort of real people we might be talking about once we get into the Viking Age. So it's probably time to take a little bit of a step back to the reality and leave the crows and the tooth and the weather hat behind us and uh, start looking into real people and kings. Yes, uh, although I, I must say I like weather hat and Wartooth, but a man by the name of Ulof Sjöt Kjönung is next on our list. And now we're moved into reality. He's the one that at least I was taught in school was the first real king of Sweden, and he reigned from approximately 995 to 1022, and he gets the title as first real king because we know he was a king because he makes a coin in his name or with his name. Like, you know, how we have the queen on the British pound or the current king of Sweden, Carl Gustav XVI, on the Swedish coins. So because Sjötkjönung brought English coin makers over to Sigtuna, a town just west of Stockholm in the late 9th century, and made a coin with his face on it, we have something tangible to say that he existed and he was king. Yeah, and this is really cool, and this is why we, the coins in history and these coin makers are so important. And I like the story of English coin makers going over to Sweden to make the coins for him. I wonder how he uh, employed those people. I mean, we're definitely going to cover it when we get to an episode all about him, so that will be coming uh, a while in the future. Definitely. We'll definitely come back to Hrothkjörnung, because not only is he the first king with a coin, He's also the first Swedish king, but the last Scandinavian king, to convert to Christianity. So yeah, I was taught that Sjötkjörnung was the first proper king of Sweden, but then I looked at the official website of the Swedish royal family, and they actually start their sovereign list with one before Sjötkjörnung. Yeah, and that was Olaf Hörkunung's dad, a man with one of those names that would really feel right in the sagas, a man called Erik the Victorious, which is, yeah, a really cool name. Yeah, he's called Erik Segosel in Swedish, but it's translated as Victorious in English. And he reigned from approximately 970 up until, yeah, approximately when his son, Hörkunung, takes over in 995. 
and Frau Konung's mum was a woman known as Sigrid the Haughty, who was Queen Consort of Sweden, Denmark, and England at various different points over in her life. And she's important because she's actually mentioned in a lot of the sagas. So this is a great example of how the sagas are mixing in with the coins and the real history. Yeah, we're right in the middle of that gap we talked about yeah we're minding the gap between uh, fiction and fact but we're also starting to get into the viking age by this time so yeah this sort of gap between history and myth doesn't last just for the vikings it goes on for a, a little while after too yeah and i thought it was interesting to note that the official list of sovereigns published by the swedish royal family they put an approximately for the reigns of the first 22 kings. So it's not until we get to the reign of Knut den Longe, or Knut the Tall, it would be in English, in 1229 that we start to get definite dates and years for the reigns of kings. Yeah, which is amazing, really, because this is a long time after the history of England, where we have definite dates for the kings for hundreds of years before that. Yeah, but in Sweden there are hundreds of years of royal history, 22 reigning monarchs in total, where we don't have an exact date, we have to approximate their reign. And that really tells us something about the history then and how difficult it is to be exact. So even as late as the 13th century, we're still going to be saying, mm, maybe this year, maybe that year, maybe that month, we'll just have to tackle it as we, as we go. Yeah, but now we've talked about these uh, amazing, more or less real kings. Should we move on to people? Uh, they weren't all kings. So we already talked about the Sveyar and the Jötar in the last episode, and that was seen as real historical facts until recently. It's relatively recently that we started to question whether the Sveyar and the Jötar were actually defined groups. Would they have been aware of that and identified themselves as such? And i just like to build on what we talked about uh, with a few more peoples that get mentioned, usually along with the Sveyar and Jötar, from this period. And that's a people called Gutar or Guts in English. This is a people with a very clearly defined area of origin because it's the island of Gotland in the Baltic Sea off the east coast of modern day Sweden. So they're easier to pin down the uh, exact location of. The prime text uh, that talks about Gutar is another saga called Guta Saga. It's all from the 13th century, and the actual physical copy of it is kept in the National Library in Stockholm. Yeah, we'll have to go see it. We do. They used to often be mentioned when talking about Gotland pre-Christianity and before Gotland became part of an established Swedish nation-state. In fact, some historians have even claimed that there's a link between the Gutar and the famous Germanic tribe Goths. But then again, historians have also claimed that there was a link between Jötar and the Goths. Probably because they all have very similar names, which is really annoying. Yeah, so it all gets a bit murky here. And the story of the Gutar definitely straddles that area between fact and myth. For example, they have their own creation myth around the Gutar, like an Adam and Eve type tale. And just to mention it briefly, it's about a man called Shelvar who supposedly breaks the spell that's kept Gotland underwater and brings the island to life. 
regardless of the Gutar or who they were and if they were a people and what have you, Gotland was historically an isolated region because it's an island and consequently had its own unique history and developed its own unique identity and concept of its own history. Yeah, which they definitely still have today. Yeah, so it's not strange that these ideas of the history of a people come about, but then just to make things a whole lot more confusing, there's another people whose name also begins with G, the Geats. Yeah, and you can play as them on Attila Total War, for example, if uh, you wanted to do that. Yeah, I find it very confusing because we now have the Götar, the Götar, and the Geats. And they are all somehow related to uh, the gods, and they all like have a G as their first letter. <laughs> yeah, it's too much of similar sounding words. Anyway, the reason we're talking about the Geats is because they're mentioned in Beowulf and also in a poem called Windsith. From those sources, it's very unclear who these people were. Some have placed them on Gotland, so making them the same as the Gutar. Some have placed them in sort of south-central Sweden, the area that's usually attributed to the Götar. So maybe they were the same, maybe they're different peoples. Who knows? It's not like Beowulf is famous for its many references and footnotes and historical accuracy. No, that's also in the same level as sagas in that side of things. We also get people who are referred to as Norse and Danes around this time, and these people are clearly more linked to modern-day Norway and Denmark. You can see that. Norse, Norway, Danes, Denmark. You can still see the connection there. Yeah, and that's because these places have been more established as a geographical area, more so than Sweden. Yeah, we're the last ones in Scandinavia to be defined both as a people and a territory in comparison to Norway and Denmark. Even though Norse and Danes, uh, they're more related to Norwegian and Danish history, it's worth mentioning the Danes quickly because the area that's usually attributed to the Danes contains some of modern-day Sweden. That's what we've said recently. Uh, we've now said goodbye to areas like Skorna because uh, even though it's part of modern-day Sweden, it's from this point, really, that they're really part of Danish history and will be so for like a thousand years. So the Danes would have lived in what is today eastern Denmark, but also southern Sweden, whereas the bit of Denmark that is a peninsula that sticks up from the European continent, the bit in the west, that would have been home to another people, the Jutar. In fact, that part of Denmark is still called Jutland, but we'll leave the Danes and the Jutar to a History of Denmark podcast to look at. But just to say that the Danes lived in what is modern-day Denmark, but also modern-day Sweden. Nice and simple. Similarly, the word Norse or Norsemen gets mentioned a lot. Now we're getting into the Vikings. Uh, but rather than being a people, this is more likely to have been a linguistic term referring to all northern Germanic people who spoke Old Norse. So essentially, Norse or Norsemen, well, it's what we today have become Scandinavians. 
Sometimes this term seemed to have been used interchangeably with what we call Viking. When we talk about history today, for example, on the inscription on the monastery in Lindisfarne, which we'll talk about in our next episode, it says, from the rage of the Northmen, please spare us, O God. But those Norsemen would have actually been what we called Vikings. Finally, we mentioned a guy called Jordanus in the last episode. Now, he was an Eastern Roman historian, and in the 6th century, he wrote Scansa, a book about the area that we today call Scandinavia. As I believe we touched upon in the last episode, Scansa mentions several peoples who apparently live in this area. There is the Svjunar, another name for Svear, and the Adogit, which some believe to have been a misspelling of Hogland in Norway. I mean, really, really misspelled. It's only just got a G in it. That's the only bit that's correct. <laughs> well, maybe the A could be pronounced like an H. I don't know. Maybe this is an example of how like, you really, really want to find a source in history. So you're trying to find a grain of something in a book to then... I don't know, maybe sell it as the truth. It's like saying, oh, Ireland, you must mean England. <laughs> well, he also mentions a people called Haaland, and that's sometimes believed to be people from the modern-day southwestern county of Halland. Now, Jordanus also mentions a people called Skrefinnar, which has been translated to Swedish as Skidfinnar, or skiing Finns. Some suggest that this refers to the indigenous Sami who still live in Sweden today. So stick a pin in that when we come back to the history of the Sami people. Just know that they are mentioned in Jordani's book. But in general, I don't give much for this guy and his book and the mentioning of peoples in what is modern-day Sweden. There might be some truth to it. People have definitely tried to look at it and find historical facts, but I don't know. Yeah, I think all it proves is that there were people living maybe in Scandinavia or that general area at some point. Yeah, I mean, Jordanus thought that the area was an island to start with, so he got that wrong. And he claimed that some of the people still lived in caves. I don't know, I think that's fairly prejudice. Just a bit all over the page. Maybe he was acting in good faith. Maybe he just didn't know more. But I suspect he's sprinkling a lot of myth over his story. Yeah, it's the Eastern Roman saga in some ways. True, and in general, when I did research for this episode, it felt a bit like reading history about history, if that makes sense. And there seems to have been a time when, in the study of not just history, but anthropology and other social sciences, there were a great fondness of talking about people and tribes and classifying people. And we see this with the peoples of ancient Scandinavia and ancient Sweden and their mythological kings. It says a lot about the people who wrote that history down. It says a lot about the history of the history. But perhaps now in our modern times, this type of history is starting to be rejected. We just can't classify people, especially not when our sources are half fiction, half fact. 
But that's not to say that these things like the sagas or Beowulf or Eastern Roman historians writing about Scandinavia, what have you, that they don't have their place in history, but we should read them for what they are. Semi-fictional accounts, partly fictional accounts, and in some cases, as with the saga, they were written a long time after the events would have happened. So there's lots of stuff to take into account when you're reading these things. Um, but for us, it's probably time to say thank you for minding the gap and ending it for this week. Yeah, and I think it's really key to just mind the gap. We don't need to throw these sources out of the window, but we need to look at them for what they are. And so before we go, we just say that, yeah, if you're a bit bored um, hanging around at home doing nothing at the moment, just Google the mythical kings, the Saga Kunga, and you can read a lot more about these people called Wartooth and Weatherhat, and in general, just have a laugh at all of these uh, out-of-this-world type of characters that appear. Yeah, really do. They're quite funny. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review if you want to do that. And as always, let your friends and family and loved ones and work colleagues and bin men know about us. Yep, even your enemies too, if you're uh, unlucky or lucky enough to have enemies. Yeah, postmen, dogs, canaries, let everybody know. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email to flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com and the same with our website www.aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com where we have episode pictures and all that kind of stuff up there so each episode has its own individual picture which I draw on paint and they're uh, supposed to be funny um, and so yeah have a check out on those if uh, you get a chance yeah but next time it's Vikings. Very exciting. The Vikings are coming. The Vikings are coming in their longboats. Uh, but until then, it's a uh, goodbye from us. Bye bye. Hey, do.